Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 11, verses 20 to 27. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You might not notice it just reading through the Gospel of John, but John chapter 11 sits right in the middle of the book. There are 10 chapters before and then 10 chapters that come after. And the first 10 chapters take us all the way from in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, right through to the final week of his life. The event that Glenn just read about at Bethany took place three or four days before that final Passover when Jesus went up to Jerusalem and was betrayed to the leaders of the people and crucified. So what we have is the first half of the book dealing with everything that comes before, and the second part of the book from chapter 12 through chapter 21 dealing with that one week, and specifically the last couple of days. Most of that time is spent just on the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples when they gathered in the upper room on the day prior to his crucifixion. So that speaks to something that in hermeneutics we call topical relative quantity. The most important things are the things which are given the most time when we're reading through the scriptures. It also speaks to a little difference in the way that Greek literature was written over English literature. We think of a narrative story that begins to build, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it comes to its climax, finally, right near the end of the story. And in a sense, we can see something like that with the resurrection of Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John, but then there's that whole anti-climax, where Jesus meets with his disciples on the beach beside the Sea of Galilee and talks to them about fish and feeding sheep and things like that. And in Greek literature, mostly... It's right at the center of the document that you find the apex, the most important teaching. What comes before flows into it, what comes after flows out of it. And that's what we're seeing as we come to chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. The story is familiar enough, of course. We've all heard this one before. It was a matter of life and death. It was life and death for Jesus, who, after his confrontation with the Jewish leadership in John chapter 10, had crossed the Jordan River and gone to a place called Bethany, ironically, where John had been baptizing at the first. And we're told there he remained. 
in contrast to the Jews and especially the Jewish leadership at Jerusalem who wanted to stone Jesus for blasphemy, we're told that on this east side of the Jordan, in a town known literally as the house of the poor, that's what Bethany means, or possibly house of affliction, many came to him. And they said, John, John the Baptist, did no sign But everything that he said about this man was true, and we're told that many believed in him there. Now we know from our experience so far in the Gospel of John, many believed in him certainly doesn't mean all. And in some cases, at least, some of those many who believed would eventually turn away, and that could be the case here. But Jesus remained, as far as we can tell, for roughly six months in this area around the Jordan River where John the Baptist had had such an effective ministry. And he found that the word that had been sown there through John the Baptist and even through himself and his disciples eventually was still bearing fruit in turning people's hearts toward him. But as I said, it was only about six months. This idyllic time in his ministry was not going to last. And what would bring the crisis was something that none of us like to hear. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Now, this is a different Bethany. There's a Bethany on the east side of the Jordan River. That's where John had been baptizing and Jesus and his disciples too early on. There's also a Bethany on the west side, about two miles east of Jerusalem. And this Bethany in Judea was also the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary, and John won't tell this story in chapter 12, but it was this Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now some things about Lazarus, he was not only known to Jesus, this was a family with whom Jesus had obviously spent some time in the past, but Lazarus was also close to Jesus. He was a personal friend. Jesus is very specifically said to have loved him, which is interesting because when Jesus heard that Lazarus, his friend whom he loved, was ill, John says, this, Jesus heard it and said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, of course, we've heard this sort of thing before back in chapter 9, the text that Pastor Matt preached when he was here. Jesus encountered a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because that was the prevailing assumption. If there was something wrong, whatever that wrong may be, physical or spiritual or psychological, whatever the wrong was, if there was something wrong at all, then it must be because someone had sinned. Oddly enough, that's a doctrine that has made its way back into some corners of the church, even today, but it's not true. And Jesus responded in John 9, it was not this man who sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man is not sick because of sin. 
he is sick so that the work of God may be displayed, so that God may be glorified in and through his life. Here too, in John chapter 11, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Maybe we don't like to hear that. But even if we don't understand it, this sickness is for the glory of God is actually kind of the point of all illness because it's actually the point of everything. We exist. This universe exists. Everything that God made exists for his glory. As it says in Romans chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. And I really do want you to join me here. All God's people said, Amen. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory. All things as we find in the Heidelberg Catechism, including health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Maybe that word fatherly feels a little inexplicable to us. We look at the society in which we live, the world in which we live, and we have the sense that if things are going well, then we are being blessed. But if they are not going well, then something has gone wrong. Some would say something has gone wrong with us. We have sinned and we've got unconfessed sin in our lives and that's why God is not pouring out his blessings upon us. Others would maybe even implicate God in this and shake their fists at heaven and say, why? Why am I going through this illness? Why am I going through this struggle? How is this a reflection of your fatherly hand? But consider what Jesus wrote, or what John wrote after telling us that Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God. Verse 5 of John chapter 11, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And could there be a better description of what a fatherly hand would look like? A fatherly hand would look like the hand of a God who loves his people. And Jesus specifically loved not only Lazarus, who was sick, but also his sisters Mary and Martha. Verse 6, so, and that conjunction in Greek at the beginning of verse 6 means therefore or because. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, therefore... Because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. In other words, having heard that Lazarus, his beloved friend, was ill to such an extent that his sisters felt like we can't wait for Jesus to just come back and pass through and offer healing to Lazarus. We need to send a messenger. We need to call for Jesus to come because his friend is ill and because he loves us. And we know that. But John tells us, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus, because he loved this family, chose instead to stay two days longer in the place where he loved. He loved them 
So, knowing that this was a matter of life and death, and he did know, he did not immediately go up. His disciples, of course, were not unhappy with that decision in verse 8. After Jesus told them that he would lead them up to Judea again, they said, Rabbi, the Jews just now, back in chapter 10, of course, they didn't know it was chapter 10 in their day, but the Jews just now were seeking to stone you. Remember, they took up stones to stone him because they thought he was guilty of blasphemy, and Jesus had to leave so that they wouldn't get him before his hour had fully come. And they said, are you going there again, really? It's interesting that Thomas, the one who usually gets the adjective doubting attached to his name, will say, I think it's in verse 10, okay, whatever, let us go up that we may die alongside of him. So he actually wasn't doubting at all. He had great optimism about what was going to happen when they went back up to Jerusalem. And even when Jesus told his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, by which he meant death, as we'll see in a minute, they were still looking for a ray of hope here. In verse 12, they said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. No need to go back up then. The fever must have broken. He'll be getting better all on his own, right? And then in verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And I wish we could explore the use of language here in John, and Paul will pick up on this theme in a couple of his epistles as well, where Jesus first says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And by having fallen asleep, he means our friend Lazarus has died. We don't have time, but that plays right to what we're going to be seeing in a little while about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And since he had already said this illness does not lead to death, is for the glory of God, maybe a little paradox there in the minds of the disciples, but you said this illness will not lead to death. And yet, you just told us plainly that Lazarus is dead. And not only that, he went on in verse 15, For your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. It would not be putting words in Jesus' mouth to paraphrase verse 14. Lazarus is dead, guys. I could have prevented it, that's true, but I'm glad I didn't because there's something much more important than life and death at stake here. Your faith is at stake. And he says this because this is how we glorify and enjoy God. We glorify and enjoy God by believing his promises, by trusting him in all things and for all things. It's not that we go out into the world and we attempt to glorify God by impressing them with all this miraculous power that we wield. Trust me, the world will not be impressed regardless. The world looks at the heavens, which the psalmist tells us declare the glory of God. The world looks at the earth, which is itself full of his glory. 
And far from glorifying the God who made these things, they see it as an accident. They see it as some sort of singularity, anything at all but the glory, majesty, and power of the living God. Miracles don't impress people who don't have faith. Still, we might be tempted to think surely they would believe if someone could just be raised from the dead, right? Like if we could just have one single verifiable miracle of raising someone who had been scientifically determined to be dead, raising them up, and the world would see and the world would believe and flock to Jesus. Well, that famous story about the other Lazarus who died in the Gospel of Luke, the rich man being in torment and concerned for the salvation of his brother said, I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The thing is, the rich man himself had obviously not been convinced by Moses and the prophets, and he had no reason to believe that his brothers would fare any better. So he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Just raise up this beggar, Lazarus, the one whose sores used to be licked by the dogs. And send him. And, and when they see that someone has been raised from the dead, they will repent and they will turn to you. And it would seem to make sense, wouldn't it? After all, how could they ignore such a glorious display of the power of God? How could they ignore the testimony of someone who had actually been to the other side? But far from it making sense, Abraham answered definitively in Luke 16, verse 31. He said to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, of course, Jesus is telling that story, anticipating that in the not-too-too-distant future, he himself will rise from the dead, and the unbelievers will remain unbelieving still. The very people who would pay soldiers to guard the tomb so that his disciples, of all people, would not come and steal the body and then claim he had risen from the dead, would know that he has risen. He would appear to many people in those days after the resurrection. And they were well aware of it, but they chose to believe the lie and to reject this risen Savior. And even in the text that Glenn read for us a little bit earlier this morning, there's kind of a drift in that same direction. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, which is more than Mary did. And she said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we can only imagine the tone of voice that she might have used now that her beloved brother Lazarus was dead and it was kind of Jesus' fault because he didn't come when they called him. And later on in verse 32, Mary, her sister, would also go to Jesus and she would repeat exactly those same words. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It seems like maybe they spent some time talking about this. That, you know, 
Jesus healed a lot of people. We've seen him do it. And yet, he didn't come right away when we called him. And now our brother is dead. And, and we feel like if he had just heard our prayer when we asked him to come and do something about it, then Lazarus would still be alive. And even their friends, in verse 37, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man, in chapter 9, also have kept this man from dying? The thing is, they were right. They're absolutely right. He could have. And he would have. If that had been the Father's will, Jesus says in John, I am always working because I see my Father working and I do what he tells me to do. Still, I wonder how the disciples must have felt at this point, hearing the family and friends of Lazarus say these things, say, Lord, if you had been here, this would have turned out differently. And they were the ones who had heard Jesus say, for your sake, disciples, I am glad that I was not there. I am glad that I didn't go up quickly enough to save Lazarus from the death that was coming because of his illness. And of course, we know the end of the story from the beginning. We know that a miracle was about to happen. Jesus was about to perform the seventh and final sign that is recorded for us in the Gospel of John. After this point in the Gospel of John, there will be no more miracles. All of the miracles happen between chapter 1 and chapter 11. And after that point, Jesus will continue to teach and to speak, but he won't do any more signs. And the strange thing in the way that John writes about it is that once the miracle is done, once the sign has been performed, they just kind of drop the story and move very quickly away from Bethany and on to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Pharisees and the court, having heard that Jesus has now raised yet another person from the dead, take counsel together and finally get truly serious making plans to put him to death. That was their reaction to this amazing sign. But I want to go back before the miracle. Because here in verses 25, um, before the miracle, before the seventh sign had taken place, Jesus turned to Martha and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, it's another one of those I ams. Whenever Jesus uses that phrase in a certain context, especially in the Gospel of John, he's making it very clear to the people who are hearing him, I am who I am. I am God. Before Abraham was, I am. And in this case, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is the point of the book. The ten chapters that came before with all of the teaching and all of the miracles that took place were leading us here. And the ten which follow all flow from this Apex, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Definitively declaring that he is the word. God incarnate in whom was life. All things were made through him, through Jesus, the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the creator that means that Jesus Christ is God. And in him was life. The life of everything in the universe. 
came from that creative act performed by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And not only that, that life was the light of men. And a word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Indeed, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. But look where he goes with it. Therefore, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's because of that promise, that word spoken, that when Jesus was talking about Lazarus being dead, he said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. It's because of that that when Paul wants to talk about these departed saints who have gone ahead of us to be with Jesus, he doesn't say, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have died. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. Because for those who have come to the resurrection and the life and believed in him, the death of this physical body has really so little significance that Jesus said, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I said that this is the point of the Gospel of John, and it is. Even before this relatively minor miracle, which is going to be performed in John chapter 11 and will prove it to be true. And I say this as a relatively minor miracle because I want you to stop and think about where we've been in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. So when we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Don't think of that as just God the Father acting independently of the Son and the Spirit. Think of that as God acting through the eternal word, Jesus Christ, bringing all things into existence, giving life to the universe that he made and filling it with his glory. Now what would it take for the one who can do that? The one from whom and through whom and for whom are all things. The one who in the beginning reached down and scooped together some dust And he made a man and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. What would it be for him to do something so small as to regenerate a four-day-old corpse lying in a tomb? All the building blocks were already there. All he had to do was fix the parts that were broken and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. But even before Jesus turned to the tomb and cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, Jesus turned to a grieving sister. He turned to a grieving sister and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet 
shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe? Standing here in the wake of this tragedy that's happened, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Let that question just echo a little bit here today. Do you believe this? As we have seen so often, John 20 verses 30 and 31 says that Jesus did this sign, the raising of Lazarus and all of the other signs that are recorded and many others which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So again, let that question echo. Do you believe? Do you personally believe this? Standing at the graves of all of the loved ones who have preceded us in death, living in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic, watching news of chaos all around the globe, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God? That do you believe that whoever believes in him, though he were dead, yet shall he live? And that everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. Do you believe this? Have you staked your life on it? Is this your only comfort in life and in death? And are you determined to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Do you believe this? This is the most important question that anyone will ever ask you. I don't care if you're a young woman waiting for that special someone to say, you're so special, would you marry me? It pales by comparison. Do you believe this? And it's a question that demands an answer. Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I'd like to spend some time on this, but we can't. But think about how weird that is. Going into a cemetery, going to a tomb, which they were nervous about opening because they were afraid of the smell that would come wafting out from that tomb. And then saying... Lazarus, come out as if Lazarus could hear, as if Lazarus cared, as if Lazarus was self-aware enough in that moment to even be worried about the fact that he was dead. None of that was true. So when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, this is the voice of the shepherd calling to one of his sheep, and his sheep hear his voice. And he knows them, and they follow him, and he gives unto them eternal life. The resurrection of Lazarus is a miracle, not a metaphor, but it's a miracle that serves as a metaphor. Because we're going to see in just a moment 
This is nothing. This resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And his voice required an answer, so the man who had died came out. His hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And I always have to wonder when I read that. Where was Lazarus during those four days? He's been dead four days. New Testament says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And if that was the case with Lazarus, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But I have to wonder, is there a moment of disappointment here? When Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he opens his eyes and he's wrapped in linen and he's kind of, you know, hopping out of the tomb and thinking, I don't know, it was better where I was five minutes ago than it is here. Maybe, the Bible doesn't say. But in John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. When Jesus spoke to Martha, she was standing more or less at the grave of her beloved brother. He, he was still dead and she didn't know what Jesus was about to do. But more than that, she herself was dead in trespasses and sin. But Jesus spoke to her. She heard his voice and she said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I believe. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This confession made by faith even before she knew what Jesus was about to do for her brother is, I believe, the greater of the two miracles that happens in John chapter 11. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He had raised other people from the dead. Eventually, he will raise all of his people from the dead. But here, Martha heard the voice of the Savior, and she believed, and she received salvation that day. As Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And again from John chapter 5, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So again, this is the most important question that anyone has ever asked you. Do you believe this? And if so, I, I want you to join me in this little confession here. Say this with me. Yes, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who has come into the world. 
And if you confess that with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, now hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the gospel. This is the good news of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. May we pray. Lord, we believe. We believe that your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you have sent him into this world to save us from our sin. Help thou our unbelief, we pray. Convince us by your word and by your spirit. Enable us to hear the voice of our shepherd as he calls to us and then to follow and to receive from him eternal life together with the assurance that because our life is not in ourselves, not in our good works, not in our own righteousness, but in Christ alone, those who have been called and saved by faith in Jesus Christ shall never perish. No one is able to pluck us from your hand, our loving Heavenly Father. Convince us of this in the grace of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.